0: Hey guys, this is Justin. Well, we've reached the 100th episode of Excess Returns. We have been privileged to speak to some of the smartest investors we know over the course of the 18 months we have been running the podcast, and we want to use this episode to highlight some of our favorite insights from those conversations. But before we do that, we first want to say thank you to everyone who has taken the time to listen to the podcast and learn along with us. We had no idea what to expect when we launched Excess Returns, and we really have enjoyed doing it and meeting all the great people along the way. We want to thank all of our listeners for the support that got the podcast to where it is today. So with no further ado, let's move on to a few of our favorite lessons. There's probably no topic we have covered more in the podcast than Warren Buffett and what investors can learn from him. We have been lucky enough to have several Buffett experts on the podcast, and we ask them all the same question. What are the key characteristics that have led to Buffett's success? Here's Adam Mead, the author of The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway.
3: And so I guess my, my first thought, I go, I go back to what think Charlie Munger said in his 2014 special letter, which was Warren Buffett has been this learning machine. And that, that is probably, I would say, I, I would not maybe rank these, but I guess the top three would probably be this, this intense interest. He just has this intense interest in business and it just, that natural curiosity leads him everywhere, coupled with an intense focus and then this continual learning. And so you have these three, three things kind of just propelling him forward. And I think Charlie has said in the past that Warren, if you stopped his progression at the end of any decade, would not have done nearly as well as he did in future decades because he continues to learn. And we've seen that recently with uh, you know, their investment in, in Apple, for example.
4: What do you think, you mentioned Munger, um, what do you think the biggest influence he's had on Buffett is?
3: Yeah, I, I guess probably that qualitative aspect. So that's that's what, what Buffett says, and I, I, I don't have anything really to add to that, to use a, a Mungerism. So Warren started as this quantitative guy, and he was the, the Ben Graham follower, and Ben Graham was able to make his living on these quantitative cigar butts buying stocks for less than their, their net net uh, working capital. And that was, that was Buffett's foundation. And so to have Munger come in and say, hey, it's quality that matters, was a huge shift in his thinking. And so, and I, th- I think Charlie's actually said this, that Buffett would have gotten there eventually, but you have to credit Charlie for pushing Warren along and, and getting him to that qualitative aspect and that ultimately led to C's candies and Coke and some of these other great businesses that Berkshire's acquired over time
0: and here is George Washington professor Lawrence Cunningham who is one of the world's leading Buffett scholars answering the same question so the, so you know you're you're really a student of Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and you know where I want to focus this first question for you is you know with Buffett he's achieved success that no other investor has been able to in history. I think his returns are something like 20% annualized returns since 1965. Um, given that he's achieved something that arguably no one else has been able to do and no one else probably will be able to do in the future, you know, what are the key traits? What are the key things in your mind that has allowed him to produce those results um, and achieve something that no one else
5: um, has done ever? It's a great question. I guess the first point I'd make is that I do think it's more skill than luck. Uh, You know, a lot of critics simply say, well, you're going to see a lucky person like that every once in a blue moon. Uh, Luck has certainly uh, played a role in in Warren's career and success, um, but uh, skill has been obvious. And I think that uh, uh, that's an important threshold point to make. Uh, there, there's something about what he did and how he approached things that matters and other people can learn from. And, and I think you're right to to um, resist boiling it down. I think there are many different uh, personality traits, intellectual habits, um, economic outlooks uh, that have played a role in, in helping Warren to be very good at um, identifying excellent businesses waiting for the prices right holding for the long term and so um but but i do think if if i was pressed um you know for those the rest of us to think well what what can i do differently or better uh i I think the bottom line on on him is i'll call it absorption what i mean is he's been a learner his whole life he's read a lot well known for for that uh, he's paid careful attention to uh, the thoughts of others from all different points of view. He's weighed evidence. He gathered a lot of evidence and thought about things carefully and it has a high absorption rate. And so he uh, gathers lots of information and then and, and analyzes it. So um, and then within that framework of you know, mostly skill and heavy absorption, I'd say disciplined rationality again something all of us could potentially do do better um all of us make um um basic psychological miss mistakes or s- sometimes they're they're sensible and practical if, um you know you're you're engaged in behavioral propensities um that might lead you to a sub rational decision he's been uh, very aware of those uh, realities of, of, of human thought and behavior and, and has done a really good job of controlling his own so that that kind of disciplined rationality you know and it translates into um, being patient uh, waiting for the right pitch as they say in baseball as he says, says a lot you know waiting till um, the the opportunity to uh, swing and make it is so obvious uh, that it's hard to make a mistake. So it's a bundle of things, um, uh, but uh, there are a few core principles there that I think all of us can benefit from, especially that idea of absorbing lots of information and trying to be aware of our behavioral ticks and, 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 and control them.
0: A big benefit of the podcast for us has been the ability to learn about topics outside of our circle of competence. Although we may think we are at times, neither Jack or I are economic experts, but we are living in changing times where understanding the economic implications of government policy is more essential than ever. One of the most important concepts to understand inside that realm is the idea of modern monetary theory or MMT. We had our favorite economic expert, Colin Roach of Orkin Financial, to help us understand MMT and its possible implications. When we um, think about and talk about sort of the fiscal response and I guess what it means sort of going forward, one of the concepts that kind of comes up a lot is this modern monetary theory or MMT. Um, because its validity, yeah. you know, will probably tell us a lot about what happens going forward. Many of our listeners are individual investors and MMT is sort of hard to get their heads around, um, you know, unless you really have like a, a, a strong economic background or understand the theory. So just what is the, what is the simplest way you could explain um, MMT to our listeners?
6: So there's a lot going on in MMT and it will a lot of people who will first encounter it will their head will kind of explode because it's it's counterintuitive in a lot of ways. I've been a proponent of aspects of it and a critic of, of bigger aspects of it because I think they I think they play some word games with with aspects of things but the the general theory is that the it's a macro theory. That basically states that the the government is the monopoly supplier of the real money in the economy, mainly currency. So things like reserves and um, depo- uh, treasury bonds, bills, notes, and um, and cash itself. They would argue that those are kind of the the top of the the hierarchy in terms of the most important forms of money. And the the MMT people essentially argue that when a state government creates its own currency you have a national currency in essence they argue that this causes all sorts of problems for the the rest of the economy that this causes unemployment and it causes a shortage a natural shortage of the the safest type of currency the safest type of money. So. You know, anyone who's read my work will know that anyone can create money. Any, I could go to the bank right now. I could spend on my credit card. It, the bank will literally expand its balance sheet and create money for me. Anyone can create money. The argument from the MMT people is that the government creates the very safest type of money and causes all sorts of problems. But more importantly, what they argue is that the government doesn't need to do a lot of the things that the rest of us need to do. They don't need to obtain for instance revenue to be able to spend and um so bond issuance and things like that is really unnecessary which you know is kind of um it's kind of a technicality in my opinion in that the the government sure the government could print money but the government still needs an income the government still needs resources to be produced from the private sector to to give its currency value and so there's some word games going on but the The big kicker from the MMT people is that they essentially or they effectively argue that the government can control the the rate of inflation. They can the government, they would argue, is self financing in the sense that their spending will create a sufficient multiplier effect that it need not be inflationary. And so that's extremely theoretical in the sense that they they've They can't prove it because it's this has essentially never been really tried or 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 empirically proven. And so if you believe in MMT, your tendency will be to argue that not only does the government need to issue currency and deficit spend in Athens, but that it's essentially a good thing outside of a high inflation environment. And so that's really the the kicker with them is they would argue that rather than, then being able to obtain money being the constraint for a government, they would argue that the the true constraint for a government is inflation, um, which, again, I would say is kind of they're kind of just playing word games because governments go bankrupt through their foreign exchange rate. Basically, they go they go bankrupt through their their rate of inflation. Um, they don't they don't run out of money, of course. I mean, an entity with a printing press doesn't run out of uh, of money to be able to print, but they can run out of people that believe in that currency. And when they do, you'll see it in the real exchange rate. So but for an MMT, you
4: would then argue that really what we have to monitor here, as, as we're doing all the stimulus, as we might move to more of an MMT world going forward, what we really need to worry about is just inflation. And as long as inflation doesn't get out of control, would they argue we can just keep doing this stuff? Is, is that sort of the theory?
6: Pretty much, yeah. They would They would say it's, it's not just... Um, It's not just beneficial, it's necessary. I think they would say that the real goal of MMT and I always tell people this, that deficit spending, big deficit programs are not MMT. There's nothing there's actually nothing all that new about big deficit programs. I mean, we ran we ran bigger deficits in World War Two than we have right now as a percentage of GDP. So, you know, there's nothing new about running big deficits or even, you know, big government spending programs. The thing that's really unique about MMT is that MMT specifically says that the government causes unemployment and that they're the only ones that can create full employment. And so MMT's big bazooka is a job guarantee program. They would basically offer they would have the federal government offer a job to anyone who wants it, thereby creating full employment. And. This has never really been done in any developed economy in any great magnitude. And they argue that that program would also be able to control inflation in various ways. And they can't prove that. It's just it's a totally unfounded, you know, unsupported claim that I'm extremely skeptical of um, just because especially because there's no evidence to support it, but just. Um, I think from a common sense perspective the idea that you can you can give everybody a job and not have any excess inflation to me it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense uh, so it depends on so many other factors you depend on so many such a productive underlying private sector that um, sure maybe this would work in the United States and a few other really big productive economies like Japan and places like that but can you apply this in a broad scope? And like, I'd love to see the Italians try to try something like MMT. It would, I'd be willing to bet it would blow
0: up their economy. One of the biggest things the podcast has allowed us to do is to better challenge our own beliefs and look at the other side of the argument. Even if our beliefs are strongly held, those who listen to the podcast often know that we are big believers in systematic value investing, but that can sometimes lead us to not give proper thought to the other side of the argument. One of the best arguments for that other side came from Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management. He explained why factors like value eventually become victims of their own popularity.
4: One of the things that uh, interested me, uh, that kind of struck me about your discussion you guys were having on your podcast, was this idea that the factors that are the most compelling, the factors that have the most evidence, the factors that people that make sense to people, those are in, in many ways the most vulnerable to this whole process. And you had a, you had something on Twitter that was it was very interesting. You said, "What if the very qualities that make factor investing so compelling are ultimately responsible for driving smart beta premia to extinction?" I was wondering if you could talk about that idea and the idea that certain factors that are more popular may actually perform worse in this type of framework.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people that embrace empirical finance, they say, and I've fallen victim to this in the past as well, um, but they tend to sort of think that these effects exist in a in a vacuum, right? They don't sort of think about the underlying um, money dynamics that, that create these in the first place. So if you just so go back to why do these opportunities to generate excess returns exist? Well, they exist because either because of risk aversion or preference, a certain class of investors has decided that they they want to under-own and underprice. There's a lack of demand for securities with a certain set of characteristics, right? Um, you know, maybe people prefer not to own companies that have had where the last one two or three year uh, growth has been negative you know Um, and that may manifest as these companies with this negative earnings growth historically uh are priced at a lower premium they're cheaper um and in fact they extrapolate out this decline in earnings forever when in reality the effect is more likely to mean revert and and so what happens is uh, people are expecting the uh, returns or sorry, the the earnings to continue to decline. They actually begin to recover. And so it turns out that you were underpricing the security relative to the potential earnings accretion in the future. Well, if a sufficient number of people decide that they want to make that error or express that preference um, or want to avoid that risk, then it will create this group of securities that are underpriced. And if they're underpriced, it means another group of investors can come in and deploy capital to those securities and expect to earn a premium, right? So that's, that is how all of these premium need to um, come into existence. There needs to be a group of people that decides they they want to underown them so that another group of people can, can come in and, and um, recalibrate that and earn an excess return. So if you sort of think about, a few different steps in this process so there exists a group of investors who don't want to own securities with certain characteristics a paper is published that suggests that investors who want to deploy arbitrage capital against securities with those characteristics have historically earned returns let's imagine that there's a billion dollars of unpriced securities just to simplify the process and then a paper is published and then a billion dollars of arbitrage capital is deployed into securities with these characteristics then what should we expect to happen to this premium Pro- probably it should go back to zero right well what if two billion dollars is deployed into these securities well now now you've got more capital that is looking to own securities that were previously underowned. so now these securities are now over owned therefore you should expect a negative premium so the sign of the excess return has inverted right now the question becomes what type of premia are more likely to attract arbitrage capital well they're the type of premia that are in journals that are uh, considered to be highly credible written by authors with high status that um, others in your peer group have also allocated to where the original effect had very high statistical and economic significance so to the extent that you're chasing into a class of securities or a factor strategy where those things are true, probably there's a large number of others also chasing their dollars into the strategy. And there's a higher likelihood that those dollars will overwhelm the original effect and invert the sign. Um so 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 that's really what I meant by, you know, if if the popularity of a strategy sows the seeds of, or may sow the seeds of, of that strategy is eventually invert eventual inversion.
0: In addition to challenging our belief in value, another thing that many of us who are value investors have to recognize is that traditional approaches to value investing have missed some of the most successful companies and best performing stocks of the past decade. In our episode with Rafael Resendiz, co-founder of the Applied Finance Group, he explained the importance of looking at intrinsic value as opposed to more simple value metrics.
8: I have a table that we can refer to, uh, a little bit difficult for the, for the radio listeners and so on, but we'll, we'll get the material in and collate it in. I think what's really interesting is if you look at, well, starting off with the the notion of intrinsic value, we think of intrinsic value, again, kind of boiling it down to a very simplistic model, book value plus the present value of future economic profits, okay? If economic profit's zero, then intrinsic value and book value are the same. So there's going to be some overlap between what an intrinsic model says. Uh, the company's worth is and book value, specifically to the extent a firm uh, is not earning rates of return above or below its cost of capital, you're more or less going to end up with similar answers. So if we take the universe of stocks that we did for the asset pricing study and you break it up with respect to uh, 30, 40, 30 groupings of stocks, the same way Fama French broke up the data that we did for the asset pricing study on the basis of book value. And what we call the intrinsic value factor, which is our estimate of its int- of a stock's intrinsic value relative to its traded price, okay? You, you, so you form nine portfolios. There's two portfolios that has great overlap: stocks that we say that intrinsic value factor says are undervalued and book to price says are cheap. Those are complementary portfolios and where the intrinsic value factor says it's expensive and book to price says, or intrinsic value says it's undervalued, book to price says it's expensive. Those are also complementary portfolios. You look at the alpha of those portfolios and it behaves exactly the way you think it should over the last 25 years. Positive alpha on the undervalued cheap stocks, negative alpha on the undervalued expensive stocks, okay? Now, the interesting piece becomes what happens when we say Uh, stocks are undervalued but from a book to price perspective they're expensive or they're fairly valued okay that group of stocks has significantly positive alpha what happens to cheap stocks that are expensive or fairly valued that group of stocks has significantly negative alpha to us we understand the special case where book book value and intrinsic value give very similar messages and similar to how the investment factor had returns dominated from the area of wealth destroyers, book to price benefits a lot from that correlation to intrinsic value. I mean, at the end of the day, the motivation to a large degree for folks to undertake value investing is they wanna get something that's below its worth, right? Getting something at a good price, not necessarily cheap. So that's kind of what book, book to value investing, book to price investing is attempting to do. When you strip out undervalued stocks, that metric fails. The exact same thing happens the other way with respect to you know, expensive book-to-price stocks and cheap intrinsic value stocks or undervalued intrinsic value stocks.
0: And Robert Hagstrom, CIO of Equity Compass and author of multiple books on Warren Buffett, helped us put this idea into practice by explaining how Bill Miller was able to see the value in Amazon long before most investors did.
9: But it was Dell Computer that actually created, I think, a a pivot in his thinking. He bought Dell Computer 94, 95, I guess 93, 94, and it was trading at six times earnings, which is how all PC stocks were trading at six times earnings. You'd trade them at six and you'd sell them at 12. And so it got to 12 times earnings and everybody bailed out of Hewlett-Packard and Gateway and and, and Dell, but Bill kept Dell. And then it became about 25% of his portfolio and it was trading at 45 times earnings and everybody thought he'd lost his mind. But what Bill discovered by getting into the guts of the business, so he's not looking at factor-based accounting methodology, he said, what's the return on invested capital? Okay, Dell Computer was the very first company to ever generate 100% return on invested capital. Never had been done in the history of capitalism, never, right? So if you remember back in the old days, uh, well, you know, basically the model there was that Dell was able to grow the business on the count receivables of its customers. You would order a computer in the old days. You'd call up the 1 800 number and say, I want this monitor, this keyboard. and need this much speed, this much memory. And they said, Fine, uh, we'll ship it out to you in two or three weeks. And uh, you said, That'd be great. And they get your credit card. You gave them the number. That money is in the Dell bank that night, but they didn't have to pay the supplier over 30, 60 days. And so, as long as the orders kept coming in, it didn't require any capital to grow the business because you using the receivables of the business to grow the capital of the company. So when it became 100% return on invested capital, was it worth more than 45 times earnings? Absolutely. If you do the math on it, anything that's growing at 15 to 20% per year at 100% return on invested capital is worth a lot more than 45 times earnings. So Bill, that, that episode in his life began to help him understand that if you follow things pragmatically, how they're evolving, it will help you understand how to make the right decisions. Everybody else was trapped in that correspondence theory of truth that it's a low PE, high PE world, and you, you know, buy and sell. I tell you that long story because that basically helped him understand Amazon. Amazon, when he bought it, he bought it on the IPO, sold it a year later at a double. Then in 99, right before the technology crash, you know, made another huge bet in Amazon and everybody thought he'd lost his mind. What happened? Well, when we went to go see Jeff Bezos, um, you know, and and, and the, the the descriptions of Amazon at that time was, well, it's Barnes & Noble. So if you look at Barnes & Noble and look at its price earnings ratio, its price to book and things like that, then you look at Amazon, you go, well, you have to buy Barnes & Noble. It's much cheaper than Amazon. So you should basically buy Barnes & Noble and sell Amazon. Well, that didn't work out too well. And then when Amazon basically began to do more than books and it did videos and then kitchen appliances and nothing, said, oh, no, no, it's Walmart. So what you should do is Go long Walmart, short Amazon. Well, that didn't work out too well. (laughs) But when we met with Bezos and Jeff met with with Bezos, um, Bill said to him, what's the business model? And Jeff said, it's Dell. And it was like, we're home free. We know exactly what's going to happen, right? The world was describing Amazon as Barnes and Noble and Walmart. Bill described it as Dell.
0: On the opposite end of the spectrum of value is the concept of bubbles. We all know that bubbles will occur at times in markets, but we also know that many experts tend to overuse the term. We talked to Research Affiliates founder Rob Arnott about his framework for identifying bubbles and what, if anything, investors can do about them.
2: I find it interesting people talk about the tech bubble, the Japan bubble, and it's always in retrospect. And if it's in the present, It's more framed as a question. Uh, I think Tesla might be a bubble. GameStop looks like it might be a bubble. Why not rigorously define the term bubble in a fashion that can be used in real time? So we did that in 2018. The definition is really simple. Firstly, start with a valuation model, like discounted cash flow. What assumptions do you have to make about future growth to justify today's price? If those assumptions are extravagant and implausible, you might have a bubble. A check on that is uh, the second question. Does the marginal buyer care about valuation models at all? So is Apple a bubble? No. You have to use aggressive assumptions to justify today's price. They aren't extravagant. They aren't implausible. They're just aggressive. And there are some marginal buyers of Apple who aren't buying the Apple story, they're buying a valuation model in which they're using aggressive assumptions and they're saying, look, this stock is sensibly priced. Okay, so that's not a bubble. It's expensive, but it's not a bubble. Um, Tesla, uh, if you take last year's sales, 2020 sales, if you increase it by 50% per year for the next 10 years, then Tesla in 2030 will be 55 times as large as it was in 2020, 55 times as large. By comparison, Amazon, growing at 26% a year, compounded, tremendous growth, is 11 times as large as it was in the year 2010. So 11 times versus 55 times. Do you think Tesla will have five times as much growth in the next 10 years as as Amazon had in the last 10? That seems to me implausible. Let's take a further assumption. Let's assume that their um, net profit margin, uh, uh, gap accounting profits in the year 2030 are as high as any major automaker has had in any year in the last 10 years. Well, that'd be a little over 10% after tax profit margin, um, uh, gross margins um, before um, the discretionary expenditures north of 25%. Uh, If they achieve that in 2030 and you discount that back to today, you get a value of $430, not $600. Okay. So, yes, Tesla's a, a bubble if the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. Have you met any Tesla investors who say, I'm looking at a discounted cash flow model. I love, I love the outlook for the company on a valuation basis. No, they don't exist. So, that's the definition, and it is an actionable definition that can be used in real time. That's, I think, very important. Now, the next The third part of your question is, what can investors do about bubbles? That is trickier. Bubbles can last longer and go further than anyone could possibly imagine. So be very careful about shorting bubbles. You don't have to own them, but shorting them is very dangerous. Um, My favorite example is the Zimbabwe stock market during the early stages of their hyperinflation in 2008. In the summer of 2008, if you said, this country's experiencing hyperinflation, it looks like it's about to get out of control, the last thing I want to do is own stocks in this country, I'm going to actually short them. I'm going to short the Zimbabwe stock market, but I'm going to do it prudently, just 2% of my portfolio. Well, the first six weeks of summer, the Zimbabwe stock market, the currency fell tenfold in six weeks. So people didn't want to have any Zim dollars uh, that they could possibly avoid holding, and so they put money into the stock market, and it went up 500-fold in Zim dollar terms, 50-fold in U.S. dollar terms in six weeks. By the end of the summer, the currency had fallen another 100-fold. The stock market essentially fell to zero and dis- and stopped trading. So you would have been absolutely right. but. In the intervening weeks you would have gone bankrupt uh be very careful with bubbles
0: there is probably no better way to finish off our hundredth episode than with our most popular interview with jim o'shaughnessy founder of the quantitative investing firm o'shaughnessy asset management and author of one of my favorite books what works on wall street jim is a legend in the factor investing space but one of the biggest things that has struck us in following him over the years is his willingness to change and evolve over time despite the fact that all of us need guiding principles to achieve investing success having flexibility to change our strategies within those principles is very important, but also can be very difficult. In this clip, Jim gives us his thoughts on how he evolves his investment strategy over time. That's one of the things that I think, you know, is unique about, well, you know, in terms of your evolution or your strategies, you are constantly looking to improve them. So like, for instance, like in your first version of what works on wall street, obviously you use price to sales as the key valuation metric value metric. And over time, that's evolved to more of a value composite type of approach. So can you just talk through the process that you go through as a firm? And you know, obviously you had strategies that use price to sales and you migrated to the value composite. So how you guys approach introducing new factors or changing those factors or evolving your quantitative investment strategies over time and how that actually works through the portfolio construction processes you know, as best
1: you can sure of course um we're always learning we're always thinking and and watching and and uh, trying to come up with new ways to measure various outcomes right so let's use price to sales and value composite um so originally and that's also in my paper mistakes were made and yes by me Um, I I naively said, well, gosh, uh, through 1993, I think is where the original What Works data ended, "Uh, price-to-sales just kills everything else. Well, had I even thought about it for a second, I would have said, well, wait a minute, yeah, for the period ending 1993, that's true, but we need to base rate these things. We need to look at portfolios that start in January and February and March and April, and, of course, you saw that in the next editions of what works. And when we do that, right, we see that it's sensitive, very sensitive, to when you start, right? So one, one start date will have price to sales as the king, another will have EBITDA to enterprise value, uh, yet another will have price to earnings, etc. That's where we got the idea for, hey, why don't we put them all together and see if that works better? We found that it worked a lot better uh, for both logical reasons. You know, we're covering all parts of the balance sheet now, whereas price to sales was just looking at revenues. Got you into low-margin businesses often, right? Um, where price to sales were very low. Now we cover the entire balance sheet, and um, uh, the efficacy of the composite is is better than any of the single value ratios. Um, uh, alone. But I think that the the process is we understand we don't know everything, right? There, There, there is not, we, we can't go, okay, we're done. We've learned everything there is to know about investing and, and now uh, we're just going to let it ride. That's very foolish because you, what you're saying is that you're smarter than every other human being on the planet and that just ain't so. And so, one of the things when you're looking at managers especially systematic managers what you should look for is the size of their research graveyard what's that mean it means everything that they looked at but didn't end up using okay um we've got a huge graveyard right and there's several mausoleums in there uh price to book has its own mausoleum for example um and and so the idea that you're ever done finding ways to evolve a strategy, I think is, is wrong. I think that what we spend all of our time doing is making sure the data is, I mean, a lot of what we do also, just a brief digression, is really boring, right? So we do an enormous amount of data scrubbing. What's that mean? It means how accurate is the data that we're actually using A lot of people don't just take it as given that, you know, if it's coming from this service or that service, the data is fine. Sorry, that's very, very wrong. So we do multiple data data scrubs. We compare multiple numbers across vendors, et cetera, to make sure that we're getting very clean data. First off, very dull, very workmanlike, but it makes a big, big difference. But then you also got to start thinking about things like, well, price book, good example. Um, You know, price-to-book has this great illustrious history, um, but all of a sudden, it's really something that worked very well for industrial-style companies, but our companies today, most of the value that they have is in brand, is in intangibles, right? So, would price-to-book be the best way to price Nike? I don't think so. And we have, uh, as shouldn't surprise you, we have a paper on that and a podcast. Um, so we are continually updating our observations, our learning. And, you know, has anything changed to the point where you need to take a hard look? Sometimes things do change, right? Uh, an antiquated uh, value ratio, price to book, worked great for certain types of companies, works a lot less well for Companies that have a lot of intangibles and a lot of value tied to brand, Apple, another example. Um, so the, what you'll see if you, if you look at, and if you're a real nerd, we'll show it to you, <laughs> we have a timeline for our various strategies, right? And, and we show how they evolved. What you won't see is you won't see us saying, oh, systematic uh, investing doesn't work. Uh, What you won't see us saying is pay no attention to valuation. You can buy whatever you want to buy because those are foundational beliefs.
0: Thank you again to everyone who has taken the time to watch and listen to us over the past 100 episodes. We hope you have continued to learn and grow and become a better investor by watching Excess Returns. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.